culture. Authenticity is the 11th commandment. It's the prime virtue to have. Authenticity means living out who you really are. Your true inner self. You be you. Follow your heart. Be true to who you are. This worldview of authenticity, it pervades every area of life, even in the church. According to this law, be authentic, we are commanded to throw off all biological, all moral restraints in order to find, in order to find our true self, not what society tells us who we are. And this can be seen foremost in the rejection of male and female as the only two genders. People must be encouraged and praised for making up or finding a a pronoun, a, a gender that best fits their true inner self. Now, you might be wondering, what does that have to do with the text that Paul has before us? Well, in our text, Paul is calling us to put off and to put on. It's clothing imagery. In our day and age, people are told to, you know, change, put on clothes that match your individual identity. So we see a growing trend to cross-dress. Men dress as women, women dress as men. But in this text, instead of dressing as who we feel we are, God's grace comes to us and tells us how to properly dress ourselves. We must be authentic, Paul says, by dressing according to our new identity, our new identity, this new nature that we have in Jesus Christ. We must be who we are in Christ by first putting off vices and then second by putting on virtues. And so first, be who you are by putting off vices. In verses 1 to 4, as we read, If you look there, verses 1 to 4, Paul explains how believers are reborn. By the power of the Spirit, they receive a new nature. The old sinful nature has died. Paul says, you have died. Is that part of your identity, that you have died? That somehow you have been gone, gone to the grave with Christ? The old sinful nature has died with Christ and the new nature has been put into the Colossians when they were raised with Jesus by faith. And we can call this the initial, the one-time conversion, rebirth. But this initial conversion is the foundation for our daily conversion, our progressive conversion or sanctification or repentance, as we can read in Lord's Day 33. And the first half of verse 5 talks about this. If you look at verse 5 there, it says, put to death therefore 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then if you look at verse 7, verse 7 says, you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. It's all about the past. The Colossians, their old identity, their old authentic self was sinful. Their title was sinner. And they lived out of this identity by clothing themselves in all sorts of depravity and evil. And they were authentic in that sense. They were authentic in that sense, which is why we have to be wary of people telling us to be authentic, to be true to who you are without any qualifications or nuances. But Paul reminds the Colossians, you were converted. You have been reborn. Look at the second half of verse 9. The second half of verse 9, Paul says, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. By the spirit and faith, the old sinful nature was usurped. It lost its dominion over them and its reign was ended. And it's been replaced by the new nature of the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. But this initial conversion is followed up by daily repentance. Look at the rest of verse 10. Verse 10 says, you have put on the new self, which is being, right? That's happening in the present. It is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. They have the new nature and identity in Christ. This is who you are now. But this new identity needs to be cultivated, needs to, to grow and be renewed. Let's say that you had a bad heart. Perhaps some of you have gone through it, a heart that's not working properly. Well, that's like the old nature. Living with that unhealthy heart begins to have all sorts of other effects on your entire body. So that other parts of your body begin to break down as well, almost to the point of death. But then let's say you, you get a heart transplant. The old heart is replaced with a healthy heart. Well, that's the, that's the new nature. But just because your heart's been replaced doesn't mean your whole body is now going to be completely healed. It's not all going to begun, begin functioning properly right away. There's still going to be some, some damage. But now that you do have a new heart, your entire body will slowly begin to recover, will be renewed. And this is the a symbol of your progressive sanctification or conversion. By the power of the Spirit, believers begin to change for the better. Not only our actions, our habits, but our thoughts, our desires, our character and virtue. Since we have put off and put on a new nature through faith in Jesus, we are called to put off vice, to put off sin. And the reason is that because of vices and sins, as verse 6 says, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. 
here we see just how much God hates sin, how much He despises evil. It makes Him angry. It causes the wrath of God to come upon it. And so in His justice, the Lord is coming to punish evil. And where do we see this most vividly? In Scripture. When we see this in the cross of Jesus Christ, don't we? In the cross, in the death of the Son of God, we see how deplorable our sins are to the Lord, to our Savior. We see that our sins deserve eternal agony. The agony that Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. And so knowing how much Jesus hates sin should spur us on to get rid of it. He died to get rid of it, brothers and sisters. And he's also coming again to bring an end to all sin. And so what are some of these vices that Jesus hates so much? Well, in verse 5, Paul lists, verse 5, Paul lists some of the material appetites, and he mostly focuses on sexual perversions, And this list in verse 5, if you look there, it begins with our physical acts, and then it moves inward to our emotions, our desires, the inclinations, the innermost parts of our heart. So verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed probably stands out to you, doesn't it? Comes at the end of this list. Perhaps it seems like it doesn't, how how does it fit in with the rest of them? But greed is emphasized here by Paul at the end because greed is the desire to, to have more, to have, want what others have. It's about wealth, right? Wanting what other, the wealth of others. But it's about anything material, really. For instance, when you commit a sexual sin, what are we doing? We are greedy. We want to possess another person, another body, another experience. We want something we aren't allowed or supposed to have. And so greed in this broad sense is idolatry because you are wanting something more than you want God himself. You will sin against God just to get something you want. It's the most foolish thing to do, but we fall into sin all the time, don't we? God is the source of all good things, but we forsake him in order to get lesser things, things that will actually only bring us misery, that don't actually fill our hearts. We forsake all the joy of God, like Adam and Eve, and we take that forbidden fruit, the fruit that looks good to eat, but what does it leave us with? It leaves us with sin. It leaves us with misery. It leaves leaves us with death. Now, one specific application I want to make from this is about gender identity and same-sex attraction. The amount of people identifying as LGBTQ is skyrocketing, as I'm sure you all know. 
And so it is that the number of believers struggling with gender confusion or sinful attractions are growing as well. Perhaps it's you, perhaps it's your friend, your child, or your friend's teenage son or daughter. But in the church, there are those who want to rob God's people of God's grace when they struggle in these areas of gender and sexuality. They withhold the the hope of Christ's gospel in two different ways. The first thing that these, these false teachers rob people of is the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. These false teachers, they do this by, by telling people in the church that your feelings, your desires, they aren't sin. You're only guilty before God if you act on those feelings or if you indulge in those desires. They will say it's, it's not sinful to feel that your identity doesn't align with your, your biological body the one that God has created you and given you. But in contrast to these false teachers, several theologians from the Presbyterian Church of America, they summarize Scripture so well. In response to these false teachers, they said, we affirm that impure thoughts and desires that arise in us before a conscious act of our will, they are still sin. These desires within us are not just mere weaknesses. They're not just inclinations to sin, but they are themselves idolatrous and sinful. And a healthy conscience from God would just intuitively knows this, just knows that there's something wrong, there's something sinful about this. There's shame and guilt associated with it. It's wrong to be oriented to the same sex. But what is such a person to do with their guilty conscience? It doesn't tell them, it doesn't matter if you tell them like the false teachers, no, it's not wrong. Because the guilt and the shame is still going to remain. People need to be affirmed that, yes, it isn't right that those, those inclinations aren't right. Those feelings that arise in you unbidden without, your, without you wanting them to be there, they're still wrong. They are sin. They deserve the wrath of Christ, the judge. And so first we need to bring that, that bad news, don't we? That yes, it is sin. Like greed in our text, Like greed in our text, it is idolatry. You shouldn't be inclined to the same sex or feel your identity doesn't match your gender or any other unbidden sinful desire for that matter. That's the bad news we all need to hear. Because without the bad news, we don't look or find comfort in the good news. And there is good news, isn't there, brothers and sisters? That God gives grace through Jesus Christ who died for all our sins. 
all kinds of sin. Believers who are fighting these kinds of sins, they receive God's comfort that it's not who you are anymore. God graciously forgives you of all your sins just like the rest of His people. All of us have original sin. All of us have evil inclinations within our hearts that need forgiving. We're all sinners. But by God's gift of grace, we are now justified, declared to be righteous. That we are His own new creation, His possession, His people. But there is a second grace which some false teachers in the church rob struggling Christians of. This is the grace of progressive sanctification, of continuing conversion. This grace of progressive sanctification. You'll hear these false teachers say things like, you can't change. That's just who you are. That's just who you'll be. Christians, you just, need to, you just need to make truce with that sin, with that issue. You're not going to overcome it, so don't waste energy trying to kill it. Because what's going to happen, you're only going to become demoralized after fighting it for so long. But where's the gospel hope in that kind of message? Scripture doesn't call us to make a truce with sin. It doesn't call us to make a truce with ingrained sins, no matter how deeply ingrained they seem to be, how deeply tied to who we are. Rather, the Spirit gives us hope by commanding us to take up the call to fight our sin, to put it to death. And this is a calling we can take up with joy, isn't it? Because we aren't taking up arms, we aren't fighting against sin in order to be saved, we are doing it as people already saved by God's grace. We wear the uniform of Christ. And so we fight the enemy, the sin which wears the uniform of our enemy. And the next list of vices that Paul calls us to put off comes from verses 8 to 9. Verses 8 to to nine. And in verses 8 to 9, we see a list of relational sins. Unlike the last list, which worked from the actions inward, this list goes from our evil feelings and it moves outward to our actions. Evil feelings toward people and then evil actions against others, specifically the actions of our tongue. So verses 8 to 9. Paul says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. These vices, they destroy community, which is why the Spirit goes on to say in verse 11, here there is neither Jew, Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Now, in the fallen world, there is deep hatred, isn't there? There's gossip, 
prejudice of people from other groups. And this is a sign of the division of our broken world. But how did God create humanity? He created us as one race, one humanity that was supposed to live with Him forever in peace. But all these relational sins, anger, malice, slander, and lies, they've divided God's humanity. And so Paul reminds them that the church is God's new, reformed humanity, a new, fresh humanity. In Christ, all these people, once divided by all these kinds of sins, are now united in Christ. Christ is in all and over all. And brothers and sisters, this is why we must put off all these sins. They have no place in the church. There's no room for racism. There's no room for segregation among the church. Rather, the Christian community is one where believers of all the four C's are united. Right? We have all these, the four C's of, of culture, people from all different cultures. We have people of all different colors. They're united in Christ. We have people of different castes, different levels in society, and coin, people of all different wealth, stratifications. You have the rich and you have the poor united into Christ, right? These four C's, they become united in the one C of Jesus Christ. And so we are called to kill our prejudice, to put off our lies, our slander of other people, calling them names or looking down on them. We're called to stop polluting, breaking up with the anger of our heart and the words of our tongue, what God has made one. And finally, we are called to be who we are in Christ by putting on. This is our last point. It's not enough to just put off sin, but we must also put on, replace it with good character and with virtue. Not just good works, but good feelings and good desires. And Paul begins this section by reminding us of the foundation of this putting on. It's not because he is teaching salvation by works. You know, you must put this on in order to be saved. Just look at verse 12, how he begins this section. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Paul reminds them they are only saved because God chose them, because God loves them. Don't seek moral transformation in order to be loved. That's not how salvation works with God. Don't seek moral transformation in order to be loved by God. Rather, seek moral transformation because God has already loved you. 
He has loved you in Jesus Christ. This is the assurance that helps us to zealously put on good works. Also notice that Paul, what does he do? He calls them holy. Before the Colossians, you, before you were sinners, but now they can be called saints, holy. And in a way, we might admit, right, the sinner, that I, the sinner identity remains. It still needs to be put off. We need daily repentance. But our new and our true and our eternal identity is that we are holy, beloved of the Lord, children of God. And so we must put on saintly clothes. We must live this out by putting on virtues, a Christ-like character. If we are in Christ, we become like Christ. And this Christ-likeness, these virtues, are listed in verses 12 to 14. If you look at 12 to 14, Paul says, Clothe yourselves then with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of, you, any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Compassion. Compassion for those who have needs. We need a kindness, which is quick to listen, not severe with others. We need a humility that's not proud, thinking we're too good to associate with others. A humility that is willing to suffer for the benefit of others, knowing that all that we have is by grace alone. And we need a gentleness, a meekness that's not insecure, which doesn't get bristled up anytime someone confronts us or we interact with someone and they say something we don't like. We need gentleness that doesn't get bristled up. And we need to be patient with others. We need patience, especially as we disciple them, don't we? A patience that can spend years helping people come to Christ in faith. A patience that will help Believers put off sin and to put on virtue even when there seems to be little growth. We need patience to live amongst one another. I met a woman in Ontario who used to be a part of, a, part of the Hindu religion. And she said that her pastor spent nine years helping her in difficulties, pointing her to the gospel. Nine years being a faithful witness before she finally believed and was baptized. Nine years. That pastor's patient faithfulness was life-saving for her. It was life-saving for her children and by God's grace for her children's children down 
through the generations. That's the kind of patience Christ calls us to cultivate and to have. And finally, Paul summarizes all these virtues in verse 14. All these, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Is love the defining virtue in your heart? Or is your heart more of a critical nature, a critical spirit? It's a tough question. Does love fill your heart and overflow for others? Do you truly love your brother and sister, the stranger? If we're honest with ourselves, we'll probably confess how little we actually love. Like the Grinch, our hearts can be, you know, those dark, shriveled up, sad things. When we are ruled by hate and anger instead of love, no Christian feels good or at peace. But when we grow in love, we experience peace. And when we grow in peace, in the peace of Christ, we grow in love. This is because we are being who we are in Christ. We are being authentic. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Christ rules the kingdom of heaven, and he has brought peace with God and with others in his kingdom. And this is why we, who are members of his kingdom, are called to peace. It's not a kingdom that's in civil war with God or amongst each other. It's a kingdom in an everlasting peace because Jesus rules. Because Jesus rules, we can be sure there is peace. And so let's recognize that eternal reality that we have peace with God, that we have peace with one another forever in glory. And so let Christ's eternal peace take center stage of your heart. Let it take center stage in your outlook of life and the world that the peace of Christ is reigning. But how are we to let the peace of Christ rule our hearts, as the text says, how are we to put on virtue to grow in love? Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We become more and more aligned with who we are in Christ when we make use of the tools which God has given us. The Lord has given us the word. He has given us the sacraments. He has given us prayer as the means of this daily sanctification, this progressive conversion. And so when we make use of these means by faith, the Spirit 
works powerfully in us so that we can put on virtue, so that the peace of Christ begins to reign more and more over our hearts and our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, if you want to kill sin, if you want to live more like Christ, then you need to seek Jesus Christ. You need to look to Him alone. Well, how do we seek Christ? We seek Christ, we seek His voice in His Word. And we seek Christ by being nourished and strengthened by Him in the sacrament of Lord's Supper and baptism. And how do we seek Christ? We, we speak with Him in prayer. And we are gathered up into His presence to be with Him when we gather with the church. For wherever one or two of us are, there He is, as Scripture says. Singing also, as verse 16 says, has a special place in the Christian community and in our walk of faith, doesn't it? Together, singing is a way to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our spirits become united. We build each other up. We grow in thankfulness when we sing. When we sing, we, we set our hearts our desires, not on things below, but on things above where Christ Jesus is. And so, Christian, are you living authentically? Are you living according to who you really are in Jesus Christ? By faith in Jesus, you have died to sin. You have eternal life with Him. And so from that confidence, joyfully enter the fight against sin, putting vices that pervade your heart and actions to death. In Christ, you are a miraculous, a new creation. And so live with thanksgiving in this truth. Cultivate a Christian character, a Christian attitude. It takes work, doesn't it? But it's a work done by the Spirit of God in you. So don't miss out on the means of grace which the Spirit uses. Get rid of anything in your life that's against Christ, that's hindering you. And rather imitate the character of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, remind yourselves daily, every time you wake up, remind yourself just who you are in Christ and let that new identity govern your life. Amen.